So there must have been uh, something in our local water about nine, maybe ten months ago, because at the moment we're in the middle of some sort of a baby boom here in North Gore and also in our church. And uh, this Tuesday we had nine mums and 14 kids at Mummy and Me Cafe. So, you know, it's kind of the same number as, as uh, we have here today. And there was one little baby um, who... I, who I know the family of, and as soon as I saw her, I said to her, she looks like her cousin. And her mother and I then had a chat about who else she looks like in the family, and we were able to track back this likeness back to, yeah, the grandfather of the mother, or the great-grandfather of the little baby girl. And he's no longer alive, but his likeness lives on in his, um, his great-grandkids. Now, my brother was recently traveling through India, and, uh, they, and they visited a place called Secunderabad, which is where our British great-great-grandfather married our Indian great-great-grandmother, and they married in a church, and he was able to have the opportunity to actually go to this church and to even have a meal with the local pastor. Now, if you were to look at my grandmother, my dad, my uncle, uh, my sister, you would not find it hard to think that with, with their skin and their eyes and their hair that we do have some, something from India in our ancestry. And why is that? Because that likeness is there. Now with me, that likeness is not there so much. But with them, that likeness is there. There's my dad and uh, and. Uh, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why he looks like he does, because we have Indian in our ancestry. Now, we, we hear these phrases, right? He has your eyes, and we say that she has your smile. And in the UK, we say, she's the spit of you. Now, if you say she's the spit of you, what it means is she looks exactly like you. She's made in your image. And what we read in the Bible, which is God's love letter to us, is that we're made in his wonderful image. And we read that right back in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, where he says, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over creation. So there's something about you that has the likeness of Almighty God. There's something about you that's reminiscent of him. And sure, it's been ruined by the fall and sin, but still there's something about you that makes all of, all of the worshiping angels say, you know what, God? She looks like you. You know what, God? He looks like you. He reminds me of you. There's a family resemblance. Now, he didn't just make us so that we would bear his image. He also, um, he also called us so that we could share his message, uh, so that we could tell others that they too are, are image bearers of God, no matter how hidden that is. In other words, Jesus came to turn image bearers into message sharers. And to help us understand this link, let's turn to our passage, Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. We'll also have it up on the screen, um, which, which says this. Uh, Mark 2, 13. Later they came, uh, later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus in order to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because 
you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He said, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Then they brought him the coin, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they said. Then Jesus said to them, give back or render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is, is, is his. And they were amazed at him. Now, We've um, spent a couple of weeks where we've been hearing how the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are facing off against Jesus. And this group was known as the Sanhedrin, and they would play a really key role in the trial and the death of our Lord. But next, they step out of the ring and they actually tag in another group known as the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, one author talks about the Pharisees as the right-wingers of the day, and, and he says that, yeah, the Herodians are the left-wingers of the day. So the Herodians were in favor of the governmental rule of the land, whereas yeah, the Pharisees wanted to look after the religious liberty, yes, of the Jews. Now, we used to sing a song in Sunday school, which went like this. It went, bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. And um, it's a, it was actually referenced yesterday at the conference. And, and here we see Jesus actually binding people together from opposite ends of the political spectrum. But I don't think that's what the song meant, because they were united in hatred against him. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians started their wicked alliance back in chapter 3, verse 6. So after Jesus healed on the Sabbath, they began to plot how they might actually kill him. Now, you know, to say the Herodians and the Pharisees every time is a bit of a mouthful. And so we're going to combine their two names and we're going to call them the heresies, which when you think about it is actually kind of perfect. Um, now, what's interesting is that the, yeah, the heresies said... Uh, that what they said in verse 14 was true. Yes, Jesus was a man of integrity. Um, he didn't pay attention to who, who they are. He loves the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. So they got it right. Their knowledge of God was spot on. Right knowledge of God. Right theology. But the motivation was way off track. They were using what they knew against the, what they knew of Jesus. They were using it really against him. And then in verse twelve, we're told, um, or yeah, verse twelve, which we talked about last week, we're told that the Sanhedrin were looking for a way to arrest Jesus, and the only way that they could do this was to get him to say something that he he could be arrested for, which is why the heresies then hop into the ring to really try to catch him in his words, to catch him saying something um, maybe incriminating. So here's, here's, here's the contrast between what we see of the heresies in our passage today and what we see of Christ. Um, in verse 14, um, the heresies hypocritically called Jesus a man of integrity. But then in verse 15, we're told that Jesus, who's a man of integrity, could see their hypocrisy. And so what this shows us is that, yeah, hypocrisy 
knows what integrity looks like. And we also understand how integrity knows what hypocrisy looks like. They are um, really opposites on the end of the spectrum, but they recognize one, e um, one another, which is why the worst thing for a hypocrite is to meet someone who's a man or a woman of integrity because they won't be drawn there into the game. Um, so uh, my question for you this morning is, are you a person, are you a person of integrity? And so the Lord knows that even though their knowledge of him is right, their experiential practice of God was way, was way off. They weren't walking the talk. They knew all these things about Jesus, but it wasn't making any difference in their lives. They had lots of information without any transformation. They had lots of facts without 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 any change. They'd scored 100% on the test without having experienced a 180-degree life change. So we've established that these heresies were hypocrites, that their experience of Jesus was all head without heart. But regardless, what's the big deal with the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Because we'd probably say, well, yes, it is lawful. But the Roman tax wasn't like our tax. First, um, it, it was a tax for those uh, who weren't actually citizens of the Roman Empire, but those who'd, um, who were being ruled by the, by the Roman Empire. So it was a sign that they were under the feet of the Roman Empire. And it was also a recent tax. Um, it was actually brought in in AD 6, and in fact, only 20 years earlier, they, 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 they'd had this huge revolt because of the tax, um, and this revolt hadn't ended well. So when they asked him this, this was all fresh in their recent memory. And so I'm sure with you and, and, and your friends at work, at home, you know, around the, you know, the water cooler, we talk about you know, politics and who we're for and who we're against, and they weren't, weren't any different then, but in that culture, the stakes were so much higher. So when they ask him this, this is some sort of a powder keg. And the closest I can get to this is if you can imagine going to a place in the US that is rather politically extreme, they have a local militia, they have a manifesto, they probably live off the grid, you know, there's, there's lots of people open carrying firearms, um, and you can feel this um, hardly controlled anger against, you know, the members of the government. And, but you're there, and one thing else about you is that you're extremely well-known, so you're, so you're really famous, and you're well-liked across, you know, the world. Um, and local news hears that you're in town, and so they send over a crew who meet you at the gas station, and with this large crowd around you, um, you, uh, you know that, that whatever you say will be caught up by all the larger news outlets because of who you are. That what you say will be known as the headlines of the morning. And so here's the reporter, and the reporter says to you, what are your thoughts you know, on the taxes? Should we pay or should we not? Thinking about who you are with, how would you answer? Would you say yes, knowing that, that you're in this um, region 
which is which is very militia based very um rather extreme or would you say yes would you say no and so really that's that's what the lord is facing here it's a loaded question and also think about this is that maybe two days ago or three days ago he'd ridden into the city riding on a donkey and so you know you know folks were very anti-rome at that moment because they thought he was the messiah um, who would free them and so he does very well what he does regularly he doesn't answer straight away um you know and i think that we can learn from that because i think that we're really quick you know to leap into an argument you know and to um you know, and to say what we think, but what happens in a fight is that no one's actually listening because because everyone's in the middle of a brawl. And so James chapter 1 verse says, uh, verse 19 says this, it says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And so here's, here's, here's the Lord. He's a man of integrity and he's face to face with with this with this heresy group and their hypocrisy and what he does is he stops he pauses he asks for a coin that's worth one day's wage and he waits while everyone you know looks in their tunic pockets and then someone hands it to him and it's warm because they've been holding it and and everyone in that crowd is wondering what's next is this street magic will he do something in you know really impressive and then he looks at the coin and he says to them whose whose image is this and whose inscription and the answer is clear the it's caesar and so jesus says that you should give to caesar what is caesar's and to god what is god's and what this means is that that coin was made by caesar in his mint it was minted by him it's a it's a representation of the financial reserve that he has caesar's head is on the front wearing a laurel wreath wearing a crown and it even says his name around it so it's his image it has his name it's his so you should give it to him um and what what we should understand is that part of being a good citizen of heaven is that we are good citizens of earth that we are good citizens of 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 our nation um now, r- remember that Mark was written to folks in the Roman Empire who were undergoing really, really bad persecution. And so, so what he was asking was actually a, a really important question. When should they revolt? And when should they say, okay, we will do what you say? You know, th- you know these are people... Who, who had family members who were being fed yet to lions and who were being burnt alive, as I mentioned last week. These, these were people who were living in a constant state of absolute terror. And so it's, it's to Rome that Paul writes this in Romans chapter 1, verse thir- uh, Romans 13, verse 1. Let's read this all together. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Okay, let's read it all together. Let everyone be subject 
to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Verse 6, this is also why you pay taxes for the authorities of God's servants who give their full time to governing, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So that's the kind of rule, rule of thumb how we are to live. And so the heresy group comes and they try to trap him in his words. And he points out that they are a bunch of hypocrites because their experience of Jesus, like I said, is all information without what? Transformation. It's all about the head without the heart. But now Jesus turns it around and he says, he doesn't just want your head. He doesn't just want your mind. He doesn't just want you to say, yes, I understand. He doesn't just want right knowledge. He wants everything. He wants head, head and heart. Verse 17, we are to give back to God. We're to render to God what is his. And so when you, when you l- look at yourself, You look at your image. You look at your inscription. And that will tell you who the owner is. And so you you have to ask yourself, who do I look like? Who is the image on me? What is written on me? Now, I've already shown how we are made in the image of God, right? Um, Right there in the book of Genesis. And then we also uh, read in Psalm 100 verse 3, it says, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. And then we read in Psalm 8 verse 5 that we are the crown of the creation of the Lord, that you have made them humans a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and with honor. And the fact that we are his, you know, the fact that we are made in his image should change how we respond one to each other. It should change how I relate to you and you relate to me. So we read this in the book of James chapter 1 verse 3. It says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who are made in God's likeness. These are people who are made in the image of God And yes, we are made in his image. And yes, this fall has kind of ruined it. You know, we don't look like we should, but there through the grime and the mess, you can still see him, that the image of God still shines through. And so that person that has wronged you, that has hurt you, and who you feel I can never let that go, they too are made in his image wonderful image and and one of the reasons or the main reason why Jesus came is to restore the image to you know to clear it up to make us look more and more like him and so we read in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2 that we are to work at becoming more like the one whose image we bear we are to, we we have this responsibility it says this in Ephesians chapter 5 it says, follow God's example. Be, be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us, which means that we are to live out this image that is within us. Now, there are parts of God's image that we can 
never imitate. And these are known in theology as the incommunicable attributes. Okay, let's say that together. Incommunicable attributes. One more time. Incommunicable attributes. And what this means is that these are unshareable things about God that we will never have ourselves. So, you know, these are things which include that he's all almighty, that he's all-knowing, that um, he's infinite, that he's self-existent, because you and I are not all-powerful. We are not all-knowing. We are not infinite, and we are not self-existent. We only exist because someone else made us. And so these things really, um, really set him apart from us. But there are other ways that we are able to be like him. And these are known as God's yeah, communicable attributes that we can, in some measure, share with him. These are his shareable attributes. What about maybe kindness? What about love? That uh, we are to love each other in the same way as what? As God has loved us, which, which, which means that that attribute of love he shares with us. What about being holy? We are called that we are told that we should be holy even as God is holy. That's a shared attribute in some measure. What about wisdom? We read in Romans chapter 16 that, uh, that God is called the only wise God. And yet in James chapter 1 verse 5, we are told that if anyone lacks wisdom, we should ask him. So what does this mean? that God has unshareable attributes and God has shareable attributes. Well, first of all, his unshareable attributes should raise our level of worship. When we hear Handel's Messiah, we are filled with awe. Why is this? Because we can never write Handel's Messiah. It is unshareable, but it is absolutely enjoyable. It can fill us with awe. Things that we can do ourselves, never fill us with awe. It's the things that we can't do that we say that's awesome. So when I was a teenager, I wanted to um, learn a piece of music on the guitar called Romance de Amour. And, you know, in those days, there was no such thing as the internet. So I had to listen to the CD um, and work out all of the fingers. And I spent ages doing it. And, and, and I was really, really proud of myself. But then something strange happened as I was learning this, because as my skill became more, my awe became less. As my skill became more, my awe became less, because I could work it out. This is why we need the, the unshareable attributes of God, because they keep our awe quota high in our worship. As we meditate on, you know, on the fact that he never ends, never stops, as we think of, you know, you know that his might never ends as we think about that he's self-existent, that he's lived forever and ever, and no one made him. If you trace that back and think, well, when was the time when he was not? And then, and then you keep on going back and, well, was this the time when he was not? And then you keep on going back and there was never a time when he was not because he's self-existent. If you meditate on those things, it blows your mind and the awe factor 
increases incredibly. Worship happens, but we also need the shareable attributes of God. And the reason why we need the, the, the shareable attributes of God is that we need to know that we can change, that there's hope, that we can grow in our love and in our kindness, in our patience, that we can grow in our holiness, that we can resemble God more every day. And so, so that get ri gets rid of hopelessness, knowing that there are these shareable attributes of God, knowing that with Christ, as he prays for us, and with his wonderful Holy Spirit living inside us, that we can become more like God should put a huge smile on our face. That's incredible. It's incredible. So awe and hope, his unshareable attributes fill us with awe, his shareable attributes fill us with hope because we can have them too. And so, but not only are we made in God's image, we also have God's inscription on our life. And what that means is that God has actually graffitied himself on our lives. Let's say that together. God has graffitied himself on our lives Listen to this verse. It's one which I share quite regularly here, but it's such a good one. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 3 says this, that you show that you are a letter from Christ written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Such confidence we have through Christ in, in front of God. So say to the person next to you, Jesus has graffitied my heart. Okay, say it. Jesus has graffitied my heart. Now turn to that person again and say, I am a letter from Christ. I am a letter from Christ. See, see, this knowledge should really increase our confidence. So if you're someone who, um, is, who lacks that, something that you can do is look yourself in the mirror every morning and say to yourself in the mirror, I am a letter from from Christ. I am made in his wonderful image. He's written his inscription all over my life. A few weeks ago, um, we, we learned how we are a temple that is created for the worship of God. And last week we learned that, that Jesus says that God is the landowner of our vineyard. And now today we learn that as image bearers of God, we are to give himself, ourselves to him absolutely. So, you know, the money, hand that to Caesar. He can have it. It has his image and his inscription on it. But as you look at yourself, you have God's image on you. It's there plain as the nose on your face. You know, the Lord's able to see it and he wants to bring that out more and more in you because Jesus came to transform image bearers into message sharers. And, uh, and we also have God's inscription on us. And what does God's in, in, inscription on us say? Well, here's an example. It says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. That's in Isaiah chapter 43. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So if you're someone who's kind of shaking your faith, something that you can do is look at yourself in the mirror and let the Lord's word minister to you. Say, fear not, I have redeemed you. I, I have called you by name. You are mine. And so when he says, you are mine, 
when he says, I've written my inscription on you, our response is to say, you know what, God, you are right. And so we don't just give him a little bit of us like a tax. We actually give him everything because Caesar gave the Jews certain things and so they earned, so they owed him something limited, but, but God gave us everything. He did not even hold back his own son for us. And in response to him giving everything, we, gi- we give our whole selves to him as a response to this wonderful gift from me. And so the best way, you know, as we wrap up here, you know, the best way that you can spend your life is knowing that you are the currency of God Almighty. That you can come to him and say, I have your image on me. I have your inscription on me. Would you invest my life as you will? Would you spend this money of my life in the way that you see fit? There was this man called D.L. Moody. He was used of the Lord in a hugely powerful way, brought many, many people to to, uh, faith in him. And he said this. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. Then he said this, by God's help, I aim to be that man. And so what would your little corner of the world look like if you were that man, that woman, that child, that youth who said my corner of the world has yet to see what God can do with someone fully consecrated to him by God's help I aim to be that someone